Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. And we're going to focus on verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 27 this evening. Verses which are going to help us think about the benefits of going to church, as I mentioned before, the benefits of going to church. That might sound a bit odd to you at first to focus on the benefits for us of going to church because isn't church about God, not us? Aren't we supposed to focus on God, not ourselves, on giving him praise, not getting things from him? Well, yes, of course, that's true. Very importantly true, coming to church is about worshiping God first and foremost. The Bible is crystal clear about that. But the Bible is also very clear about the fact that there are benefits for us as the people of God. There are things God graciously, kindly gives to us when we worship him together. There's grace that he gives us through the means of grace. There's growth in Christ-likeness in our character There's joy and gladness in worship. There's peace. There's contentment that comes into our lives, into our hearts. Of course, there's also challenge and correction for us. Those are benefits too. There's encouragement. There's there's hope to press on in the Christian life. God gives us many things by his grace when we come to him together in corporate worship. And ultimately, above all else, he gives us himself. He gives us himself. We get more of God himself when we come to church and worship him in faith. So there are many benefits of going to church. And I think as long as we keep in mind that those benefits are secondary and that worship is primary, then I think we can consider profitably what some of the benefits are from God's word. And that's what these verses are gonna help us think about together, about what are the benefits of going to church. Let's pray first, and then we'll begin. Our God, we thank you for the many benefits of corporate worship, how gracious and kind you are to us to give us grace and to grow us in grace through the means of grace. And we pray that as we come to this portion of your word together this evening, that you would give us the same kind of heart that David had as he wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit long ago. Give us a desire to gaze upon your beauty in corporate worship. Give us a desire to take shelter in you in the midst of the troubles we all face in our lives to be lifted high upon a rock, high above our enemies that surround us every day, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we pray that ultimately we get more of you, more of you in our souls this evening so that we can glorify and enjoy you more in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 27, reading verses four through six. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. You can see in your sermon notes there that we're going to think about three things in these three verses. Beauty in verse 4. Safety, verse 5, and victory in verse 6. Those are three of the many benefits of corporate worship. Things that David and the Old Testament saints enjoyed in the tabernacle and in the temple, depending on when they lived. Things that we as New Testament believers now enjoy here in corporate worship. And things, of course, that all of God's people will enjoy perfectly and will enjoy forever in glory. Beauty, the beauty of God, safety in the midst of our troubles and victory over our enemies. And we'll look at each one of those in turn. We're gonna spend more time on the first one than on the other two, so don't get nervous as we're going through point one. Just a bit more time on that one than two and three. So number one, beauty, which is what we see in verse four. Look again at verse four. One thing have I asked of the Lord, That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. There are five verbs in verse four. See if you can spot them quickly as you run your eyes over. Putting them all in the present tense, you have ask, then seek, then dwell, then gaze and inquire. First you have ask. David says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. Now clearly when he says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, he doesn't mean one thing and one thing only because he asks for lots of things even in the rest of this one psalm. Rather he means one thing and one thing mainly, one thing primarily. I ask of the Lord. In other words, this is the most important thing I've asked of the Lord. One thing have I asked of the Lord above all others is the sense. This is the Arkenstone above all the rest of the treasures that I seek, if you will, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, etc. This is what David asked of the Lord. Not the only thing, but the most important thing. What do you find yourself asking the Lord most often in your life these days? What kind of things are you praying for? I think that'd be a good question to ask each other in conversation with each other. What kinds of things are you praying for these days? And I'm sure we're all praying for lots of different things and rightly so, we should take everything to the Lord in prayer. But let's let this verse help us to make sure we're praying for the most important things as well things about our relationship with God and our walk with Jesus Christ. Remember the story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10. If you'll turn there briefly, actually, you can follow along as I read it, if you like. Gospel of Luke chapter 10. 
starting down at verse 38 of chapter 10. We'll think about this in light of David's words here in Psalm 27. Luke 10, starting at verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So often we're like Martha, aren't we? We get anxious, we get troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary according to Jesus and that's sitting at his feet and listening to his teaching. One thing have I asked of the Lord, David says in Psalm 27. And let's be reminded by that, to ask the Lord for the most important things, things about our relationship with him. So that's ask, the first verb. How about seek? Seek, the second one. David says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. There's a relationship between asking and seeking. When we ask God for more of him in our lives, we should also seek him. Because through the seeking often comes the answer to our asking. Ask and it will be given to you, Jesus said. Seek and you will find. Everyone seeks after something. We're all treasure hunters, as author Paul Tripp likes to say. It's just a question of what treasure we're after, what we're seeking. Sometimes we seek approval, the approval of others. Sometimes we seek safety and security. We seek money, we seek status, we seek pleasure. We seek fame. We seek immortality in a way. As Christians though, our hearts have been fundamentally changed by Christ. And now, even though we still struggle with worldly desires, at our core, we seek God. We seek our Lord. Our hearts resonate with the words of Jesus at the end of Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we want that, we want to do that. Or the words of David at the beginning of Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Or as David says down in verse eight of our Psalm, Psalm 27, you have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. We should do a heart check in light of this. We should ask ourselves, 
What am I seeking? What am I after? What treasure am I hunting for in my life? Don't seek the fool's gold of the world. Seek the real gold, the solid gold of God himself. Seek the Lord. What did David seek after? What did he ask of the Lord? What did he seek after? Well, our third verb is dwell. Dwell. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The house of the Lord was the place of public worship. The house of the Lord was the place the Lord dwelt. It was the place where he concentrated his presence, as it were. And it probably refers here to the tabernacle because the temple hadn't been built yet. Remember, David's son Solomon would go on to build the temple. Though the tabernacle is called the temple at the end of the verse, as it sometimes was in the Old Testament. But the house of the Lord was the place where the Lord dwelt. And David wanted to dwell where the Lord dwelt. Psalm 26, verse 8. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Or Psalm 84, that we heard earlier in the service. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now the house of the Lord today is no longer the tabernacle or the temple because Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and temple. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The feel of that verb is tabernacled among us. John 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And verse 21 says that he was speaking about the temple of his body, his own body. Colossians 2, verse 9 says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And we who are united to Christ also are the temple of God in a sense. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? And not only we individually, but also we corporately are said to be, quote, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. So while we shouldn't really think of the church building as the house of God, we should think of the church as the house of God, because God dwells in us, his people. And God dwells among us in a special way when we gather for corporate worship. And ultimately, the house of the Lord is heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. So just as David sought the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle, we now seek the presence of the Lord in corporate worship. And also in our daily lives, because he is with us always, as he promised but we look forward to the day when we will be in his presence forever, when we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, 
as David says at the end of Psalm 23. But as David sought to dwell in the house of the Lord, it wasn't because of the house, it was because of the inhabitant. As Spurgeon said, for the sake of communion with the king, David longed to dwell always in the palace. Verse number four is gaze. We'll do verb five as well, which is inquire. Look at the end of verse four. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord so that he could gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He wanted to behold the beauty of God. Isaiah 33, verse 17, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. And that's what he wanted to do. Theologian Wayne Grudem defined God's beauty as that attribute of God whereby he is the sum of all desirable qualities. He is the sum of all desirable qualities. And he went on to say, All of our good and righteous desires, all of the desires that really ought to be in us, find their ultimate fulfillment in God and in no one else. The beauty of God. We all desire to gaze upon beauty, but we often gaze upon false beauties that are ultimately ugly. But we were made to gaze upon the beauty of God We were made and redeemed to enjoy God, to be happy in God, to be delighted and satisfied and fulfilled in God. That's what it means to gaze upon his beauty, not just to see it, but also to savor it. When you're driving down the road and you see a little pothole in the road, you don't pay much attention to it except to avoid it. But when you're driving down the road and you look and you see the Grand Canyon, well then, of course, you pull over and you stop and you gaze upon the beauty of it. You try to take it all in and you marvel at the beauty. You marvel at the majesty. And that's what we want to do with God. We want to gaze upon his beauty, the beauty of his attributes, the beauty of his person, who he is the beauty of his plan of salvation only he could devise, the beauty of his providence in our lives, the beauty of God. We do that now through the means of grace here in corporate worship, and we will do that perfectly in glory when we will gaze actually not at glory, but on our king of grace as we sing. Final chapter of the Bible Revelation 22, verses three through five says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
And that's what we have to look forward to as believers in Jesus Christ. To gaze upon the beauty of God. David also wanted to inquire in God's temple. To inquire what his revealed will is in his law, in his written word. So that he could know the path that he should walk. He wanted to gaze upon God and to inquire of God. To see more of who he is and to learn more of what he wants. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So beauty. This is one of the benefits of going to church. We get to gaze upon the beauty of God. The beauty of who he is and the beauty of what he's done for us. We see his beauty in the word in the sacraments. We see his beauty with the eyes of our hearts as we sing and pray and listen to his word. And by God's grace, our souls are satisfied in him. So don't come to church just to come to church. Come to church to gaze upon the beauty of God. A second benefit of going to church is safety. Our second main point now, safety. I'll be more brief on this, as I said, and on the last point. Look at verse five with me. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Three verbs this time, as you can see. Hide, then conceal, then lift. First, hide, David says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. And notice something interesting, which is fairly characteristic of the Psalms. He doesn't specify the trouble. He leaves it sort of open-ended. He leaves it blank, perhaps, so we can fill in the blank with our own specific trouble so that we can remember that in the midst of that specific trouble, we can turn to God and he will hide us in his shelter. Like the 10 booms and others hid Jews from the Nazis in the shelter of their own homes. God hides us and keeps us safe from our enemies in his shelter. Psalm 31, 20, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Or Psalm 91, verse one, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And if you look back up at the beginning of this particular Psalm, Psalm 27, verses one through three, we read there, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident." For he will hide me in his shelter 
in the day of trouble. Spurgeon said, he will give me the best of shelter in the worst of danger. The best of shelter in the worst of danger. So what troubles are you going through right now? How would you fill in the blank with your own troubles? Take this verse to heart and take shelter in the Lord in the day of trouble. Take shelter in the Lord here in corporate worship with your fellow brothers and sisters who are seeking to do the same. For here is a place of safety in the midst of your troubles. The second verb is conceal in the second line of verse five. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble and he will conceal me under the cover of his tent in the day of trouble. Tent is probably a reference to the tabernacle. Instead of leaving us exposed and vulnerable to our enemies, God conceals us under the cover of his tent where we find safety We find safety in the scorching heat or in the storms of life. The third verb is lift. He will lift me high upon a rock. Kids, have you ever been up to the hawk watch in this area? You've climbed up there or maybe you've been to White Rock Acres or Pole Steeple. You've climbed up to those high rocks very carefully with your mom or dad close in view or close at hand and standing all the way up on top of those rocks, what do you see? You can look down and you can see far below you the valley, all the trees. Maybe if you're by Laurel Lake, you can see some boats on the lake or some cars parked nearby. But you've stood high up on those rocks before and you've looked down over the valley below. In a similar way, God lifts us high upon a rock in the midst of the hard things that we go through in our lives. And we can ask him to help us. We can ask him to be our safety in those troubles that we go through. Many verses in the Bible talk about this. Psalm 40, verses one and two. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Or the beginning of Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. One more, Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Of course, the rock God lifts us high upon ultimately is Jesus Christ, isn't it? On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. God gives us safety 
in the midst of our troubles when we come to him, when we turn to him. When we come to church, we enjoy the benefit of safety in the Lord together. He hides us in his shelter and conceals us under the cover of his tent. And he lifts us high upon a rock in the day of trouble. Third, and finally, our third main point now. God gives us, in addition to beauty and safety, victory. He gives us victory. Look at verse 6. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So when God lifts us high upon a rock, then our head is lifted up above our enemies all around us. Like in Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. We know what that's like. But then he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. See, we are surrounded by enemies all day, every day. The world, the flesh, and the devil. But God lifts up our head above our enemies all around us. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies, Psalm 23. He gives us the victory over our enemies through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what should our response be when he does that? What David says in the rest of the verse. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. Of course, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore because Christ sacrificed himself once for all. But we now remember and celebrate the sacrifice of Christ every time we gather for worship. And especially every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together like we did this morning. And we offer him a sacrifice of praise with joy in our hearts and joy in our voices. And speaking of our voices, David says at the end of the verse, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. We can sing with joy because our sins have been forgiven and we've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and we have new hearts We have new destinies as the people of God. We can lift up our heads and lift up our hearts and lift up our voices to the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. That's why we sing together. That's why we seek to sing with volume, with energy as we're able. Not just mumbling things that we don't really mean, but rejoicing in things that we do mean. Praising God for who he is and for what he's done for us through his son. 
When we come to church, we sing to the one we ask of and seek after and gaze upon and inquire of. We sing to the one who hides us in his shelter and conceals us under the cover of his tent and lifts us high upon a rock. To him we sing, to him we make melody. Him we thank and praise and worship together like David did here in this psalm. And God richly blesses us by his grace. He pours out these many blessings, these many benefits on us in his mercy, including beauty and safety and victory. Two final thoughts as we close. Beauty and safety and victory are found in God and in his church, in corporate worship, like we've been thinking about. But isn't it true that sometimes we come to church and we don't find beauty here, we find the ugliness of sin. Sometimes we don't find safety, we find hurt and attacks and difficulty. Sometimes we don't find victory, we find just more battle, sometimes defeat. That is our experience sometimes because this is a fallen world we live in and we are fallen ourselves. But when that's our experience, we need to remember We need to be careful to remember that that is because of the sin of man. It's not because of a defect in God. It's not because of a defect in the means of grace he's given to us. It is our experience sometimes because of the sin of others and because of our own sin at times. And we should humbly inspect our hearts and see if there's anything we need to repent of And we should be gracious towards each other and point each other to Christ. And like David, we should seek God. We should seek after him. And for all the things that are hard about church sometimes, there's always more things that are good about church. And that's ultimately because of God himself. And last thought. God is the most exciting thing about church. God himself is the most exciting thing about church. There are many other things we look forward to about church, and rightly so. Being with God's people, seeing our friends, making new friends, experiencing the joy of Christian fellowship, singing together, learning more from the Bible, serving each other, and so on. But the most exciting thing about church is God himself. The most attractive thing we have to offer as a church is the triune God. So come to church for God. Come to give him praise, to get more of him. The main benefit of coming to church is God. When a couple gets married, like Tim and Lainey will soon, The wedding is great fun, to be sure. We all know this. But the most exciting thing about it is not the wedding. It's the marriage, isn't it? 
It's being joined together in holy matrimony. It's finally getting to be husband and wife. The wedding is merely the setting for the marriage to begin, like a ring is the setting for a diamond. And in much the same way, God is the most exciting thing about church. All the other things are the setting. God is the diamond. That's why David says what he says in these verses. And that's why we should let it shape our thoughts and our feelings about coming to church. We should let it shape our view of corporate worship. Come to church to worship God. Come to church to seek God. Come to church to get more of God, to gaze upon his beauty. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for these verses and we pray that you would shape our minds and our hearts by them so that we'd have the right attitude and the right mentality about coming to church, about engaging with you in corporate worship. Help us to gaze upon your beauty. Hide us in your shelter. Lift up our heads above our enemies. And most importantly, give us more of yourself through the means of grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.